With great power comes great responsibility. And in today's ever-connected world, some of the greatest power lies in data. In the Data Plus event series, alumni join a group of Waterloo experts to explore this topic. This episode is a recording from the second event in the series, Data Plus Health. You'll hear a panel of alumni and faculty members discuss how data has changed healthcare. What have we learned so far? And how could data assist in making health a human right around the world? Keep listening. So um, thank you, Christian. So um, I'm Anita Layton. Um, I am really happy to be here and um, really, really happy to be talking about two of my favorite topics, data and health. So I care a lot about health. I mean, what else should we care about anyway, right? Um, so as I was growing up um, you know, in Hong Kong, I was expected to be a doctor. Not one of those PhD, that doesn't count, but a real, real medical doctor. That's what I was told growing up, this is what you're gonna do. Um, and I thought that's what I would do, and you know, health is important, um, until I came to the painful realization of how clumsy I am. So you might have noticed I didn't eat anything before this. Not because I'm nervous, I'm not nervous, but I know if I eat anything, I will spill it on my dress. I put on a nice one for you guys. So, um, so, so I'm clumsy and I remember um, in grade 11 um, when we were doing a biology class and people were dissecting frogs and everybody's frog is you know, nicely laid out and skin peeled apart and you can see all the organs and mine was a bloody mess. So no biology for me, actually no, no physics, I tried that too, that didn't work out either. And I realized, oh, let's use computer to understand stuff. So I, I totally agree with Christian that you know, data is our, new, um, you know, is, is our new microscope. And I also think that math is our new microscope. We use math to look at data, to understand and see things that we were not able to see before. So one of the consequences of the you know, last two years, the pandemic, is that Health is basically on everybody's mind, and maybe that's why you're here, right? Um, so um, you know, people understand that um, you know, health, you know, is not just about your doctors and nurses. It's not just about you know, put people in white lab coat, and other people like you know, hey, people who play with data may also have something important to say, you know, about healthcare and health policy. Right, so um, I, it, it hasn't stopped, uh, you know, it still amazes me that um, so many of us now know what our not means. Our not, you know, of the infectious disease, you know, the reproductive number of, of that. Um, I used to have to teach the undergrad, first year student, what that is when I taught the math, mathematical modeling class. Now their parents know. Right? So if they, at least they know, they cannot define it, but they know, oh, if it is bigger than one, we're in trouble. Okay? At least they know that. Right? I'm, I'm sorry it takes a pandemic for people to appreciate what math can do for us, but we do. And in some sense, you know, I always try to look for silver lining of stuff. That's your silver lining. Math, data, important. Um, so I'm very happy to be here, you know, talk to you all about health, and you know, with my, two of my favorite colleagues who do math uh, health research from the point of view of data and um, technology. So let me introduce them to you. Um, 
I'm very happy to have um, Professor Cecilia Cotton here. She, um, like a lot of you, is, I think, a Waterloo alumna. Um, she got her graduate degree in 2003, if I'm correct. Go Waterloo. Um, so she is now an associate professor in statistics and actuary science, and also our associate chair for undergraduate studies. So um, Cecilia's um, research interest is in biostatistics, which, by the way, um, is what my 18-year-old daughter thinking about majoring in. So my daughter started um, college here, of course, here in Waterloo, go Waterloo, um, last fall. And she thinks biostatistics is cool, and she might actually follow in your footsteps as long as her mom stops talking about how useful it is, right? I love your work. It's fascinating, but I need to know how to shut up about it. But since Laura, my daughter, isn't here, would you like to tell us all the wonderful things you've done? Sure. So hello, everyone. I'm very happy to be here um, and to see all of you in person and happy for everyone who's also with us online. Um, so like Anita said, I'm a biostatistician, which means I'm primarily interested in really the application of statistical methodologies to problems in health broadly. Um, my research interests mostly focus on longitudinal data. So anytime that we have repeated measures on people over time. So we see how people progress um, and also causal inference. Causal inference is our attempts to actually infer causal associations from observational data. So of course, the gold standard for causal inference would be if we could conduct a randomized control trial. But for most things, it's impossible or unethical or just too time consuming to actually randomize people. And so what we would like to do is be able to use the data that's available, all of the gigantic number that Christiane said of pieces of data that's being generated to actually go beyond correlation and get to causation. I've done a number of work in different areas. Um, I started my career during my graduate uh, degree looking at uh, a longitudinal study of childhood cancer patients who had Wilms tumor, which is a kind of kidney tumor. I've looked at different screening modalities for childhood cancer survivors who are at increased risk of second cancer. Uh, and I've done work in various pharmacoepi sort of dosing strategies for different drugs um, and looking at transfusion medicine and most recently some work with some collaborators uh, in the School of Pharmacy looking at the effect of the COVID-19 pandemic on drug uh, diagnoses for people who are in long-term care during the pandemic. So I have lots of different interests across uh, the wide range of health, and I'm very excited to get to talk to you about it today. Yes, and all about using statistics to help us live a healthier life. Yes, yes exactly. That's what we do. Um, OK, so thank you, Cecilia. Um, I would also like to um, uh, welcome Professor um, Kathleen Burns. Um, so she, I think, is also an alumna um, of Waterloo. 
Um, she got her bachelor degree here in the 90s, right? So the conclusion that we can make based on a very small sample is that Waterloo alumni rules. We do. Um, go Waterloo. Um, so um, Catherine is a professor um, in system design engineering, and she is also a Canada research chair in human factor and healthcare system. Another hat that Catherine um, wear, I work with her a lot in her role, um, is the Associate Vice President um, of Health Initiative. What the heck does that mean anyway? That means she is our leader that is charged to help cement our place, Waterloo's place, as a major player in health technology. Right. Um, so um, I came to Waterloo not very long ago, about three and a half years ago, and I have always worked, you know, I, I, I would say Catherine is one of my favorite people in serving on university committees. Um, but I've also enjoyed um, learning about your work. So can you tell us about what you do? Okay. So, yeah, I graduated from Waterloo in 92 <laughs> uh, in engineering, okay, in the Department of Systems Design Engineering. And I took a very special kind of engineering. I'm a human factors engineer. So that I get very concerned about whether or not technology works well for people, uh, whether or not it works well for, for us. You know, and I started back in the 90s, I was really interested in power plants and whether or not the data from those power plants could be displayed for those operators effectively so they could make the right kinds of decisions. But partway along the path, I, I had a colleague who was a registered nurse, also in human factors, and she said, You've got to look at healthcare. And then when I, later on at Waterloo, I met my colleagues at the School of Pharmacy, um, Dr. Kelly Grindrod, a great colleague of mine. And she was like, You've got to look at healthcare. And so I started paying attention. Okay? And it, it really kind of, I think it changed my life and my research. You know? So it's very, I'm very interested in whether or not we use that data effectively. So, what data is actually going to our clinicians, our doctors, our nurses? How are they actually using it to make decisions? Are we doing our best job that we can with the design of technology that they can make good decisions for us? And these days, as patients, we're also consumers of data. Okay? And do we actually know what that data means? Do we know how reliable it was? Um, do we know how it was collected? Do we know whether or not it's personally relevant for us? Okay? So I, talk, I worry a lot about whether or not people trust the data that's coming forward and whether or not if the data is going into more complicated systems, um, we talk about AI systems or even data-driven technologies, do we understand the data that went into that technology? So those are the kinds of problems that I'm working on now um, that I find really interesting. A couple examples in, in healthcare, because I kind of see data in health from two different perspectives. You know, sometimes we have a lot of data, but we're not taking good enough use of it. You know, so I've got a project right now, and we're working with some, some physicians that work in neurocritical care. So they're working with some of the patients who have some of the most, most challenging traumatic head injuries, right? And they're, they're presented with a huge amounts of data. You know, so what we do is we walk and we try to understand what data do they need, what kinds of decisions do they have to make, okay? and how do we actually present that data to them most effectively. And sometimes it's fairly straightforward, if I can give you an example from that context, a really important metric for them is intracranial pressure. Okay? And they can get it. They can measure it. They've got sensors for it. Okay? But they don't always get it real time. Okay? And they tend to get it only when they take that measurement. Okay? But when I talk to clinicians, I ask them, is that an important measurement? They go, well, yes, um, but I need to know more. 
And they say, I say, well, what do you need to know? And they say, well, I need to know, is it going up or is it going down? <laughs> you can do that with math, right? Yes. <laughs> okay? And so, yeah, so that's important because that means is the patient getting better or is the patient getting worse? You know? And then they talk to us even more and they say, and in fact, if you could tell me how it's been performing over the last 24 hours, has it been going up and then down? Has it been really high for a long period of time or just for a quick spike? That's really important because that's kind of the dosage. That's how long has that patient been in a, a condition that might affect their outcome. And the thing I find really exciting about that is we have that data. We can measure that. We already have it. We're just not using it correctly. So back to, in the introduction, the comment that we are collecting a lot and a lot of data, um, but we're not always using it nearly as effectively as we can. And we could be getting far better outcomes just by really using what we have as well as we can. Okay? And so that's something that I find really, really interesting. And there's a few places, too, where we don't have the data yet. Okay, and that also interests me, and I see this a lot when we're working in areas where we're developing artificial intelligence. Okay? Sometimes we don't have the data sets to support the tools that we're developing. And then we wonder, in my research, do people trust what I put out there? You know, is that going to be effective for people? Do they realize that that was designed in a different context than what they're using right now? You know? And so that calibration of trust, for me it's not whether or not they should trust it or they shouldn't, it's that they should trust appropriately the data or the data that's being provided to them from their tools. So we work a lot on that, whether or not they actually understand when they can trust data appropriately. And so those are big questions for me. And yeah. Cool, those are really important questions. So let's hold that thought about using data to help us make decisions. So I just want to um, outline to you what we're doing. So I have a couple of questions that I really am burning to ask them. So I will ask those questions, me first, since I'm sitting here. And then it'll be your turn. I would like you to you know, submit questions so we can you know, have some form of interactions. Okay, all right, decision and data. So life is about decisions, right? It's not just health, but since we're talking about health here, so let's talk about you know, health care and decision. So what roles would you say data, big data that's coming up you know, at us at a tremendous rate um, has been used to make decisions for healthcare or can be used to make decisions for healthcare and how can we make better decisions or better use of the data to make even better decisions for us in, in terms of the healthcare system? Um, who wants to talk first? Well, how about we, okay. oh, we go with Cecilia, Catherine, Catherine, Cecilia, we'll do that. Yes? Okay, okay we're ready. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, um, so what I would say, at least from my perspective, is really important, is we're collecting a lot of the data, okay? but do we actually understand very well the decisions that we want to make with it? Okay? So that means coming back to the decision makers and really understanding what do they need. Okay? Because somebody has to go through that data and they have to interpret it, okay? And they have to many times change it, um, analyze it, produce it in a way that's really going to answer those questions effectively. So big, I'm gonna say big data by itself is more of an opportunity than a solution, okay? It really needs to be interpreted and interpreted wisely in terms of how people actually need to, to use it so that they can work with it effectively. So big opportunity um, needs, we need to, really step back and think about how we're going to use it effectively. Yeah, I think, I mean, I would echo a lot of that. Um, 
Big data sort of by definition is just like being a mass, right? It's being collected. We're either recording everything that happens or we're just kind of greedy and we're recording everything we possibly can, um, which is very fundamentally different to how we would have designed an experiment or as statisticians how we would think about what data we want to collect. So from that standpoint, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, what are the possible sources of bias? How can I get a sample that's really representative of the population that I'm interested in studying? What data is missing? You know, if we have collected some information and there's a lurking factor that's associated with both our exposure and our outcome, we'll have what's known as confounding. So it's, it's very easy to think that just because you have a lot of data, you're going to be able to just answer all the questions. And I think the real challenge is in sort of really putting a critical lens and understanding that more doesn't always mean that it's going to be able to give us the answer. We still have to think very carefully about what is missing and then how we might adjust our estimates or our responses for what we know what we know is missing. So the answer is not necessarily just in like mining everything we've got. We have to be very mindful in how we do that. On the other hand, it's an amazing resource data that's being collected that, you know, 30 years ago we never would have dreamed of having this much information out there. So it's an incredible opportunity. I almost wish you said, oh, it's simple, you know, we have the data, we will have the solution. I yeah, wish oh, that it's done. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, like, there are decisions at many different levels, right? So there are individual level questions. So I am your doctor. You come in, oh, you know, you're sick. So given you, your medical history, your symptom, um, and, and maybe your, you know, epigenetics, um, what is the best treatment for you. So that's individual level question and there are also population level question. Should we hold this event in person? Right? So, um, should we you know, prolong masking requirements? So there are all these really complicated questions that maybe um, you know, data you know, can help us make a, a better decision. Um, speaking of masking and stuff, like COVID, okay, we talk about COVID all the time. So, um, what role would you say, um, you know, data has um, played in, you know, all, in healthcare decision during COVID? Um, what, um, how, what lesson have we learned, right? Um, given the data that we had, um, could we have made better decision? Or actually, I'm just interested in. Uh, what lesson have we learned? How can we do better? Because, you know, we'll probably have another pandemic at some point. Yeah. I think that we, or one of the things that's most interesting to me, and you mentioned everyone knows R not now, was actually the public appetite for data. And I think, I mean, imagine the region of Waterloo has now a COVID tracking page, which I used to check every day. Now I've moved. Now I check the wastewater every Friday at 1.30. Um, so, but I really think that that public appetite for data didn't exist until the pandemic created it. And I think that there was a lot of information that was going on. I mean, there were case counts and then, so that the public was kind of privy to. 
And I think what maybe surprised people, speaking you know, as a private citizen, is that we wanted more data. I think there was a real appetite. People wanted to know what data decisions were being based on. So how has the government decided that we are going to put certain measures into place? And maybe even more so than that, what benchmarks did we have to hit to start removing restrictions? Um, so from my perspective, I think that that was sort of the most inf interesting part of the COVID-19 data side was that it was clear that people wanted the data and probably that people could handle a lot more data than politicians and public health um, experts have really given us access to ever before. So if this happens again, I mean, people are going to be demanding those case counts and positivity rates and R0 estimates and all of the modeling predictions like from the get-go and updated daily. I think you're right. It's amazing, like, the appetite that the general public have for um, numbers, right? So what are the other examples? Maybe weather prediction or maybe election, right? Then people do follow the number. Um, but that's about it. And now healthcare is one of them. And you're making a decision every day, really, with COVID, is what are you going to do today? The election, you're making the decision once, you know. Oh, no, no, I'm talking about people who campaign. Oh, people who campaign. They do follow yeah. it every yeah, day. Yeah, but I meant as a voter. Yeah, you're sure. doing it. You're doing it once. But, you know, we continue to have to make decisions every minute yeah. on how we're handling yeah. COVID. And people have a surprising appetite yeah. and ability to digest it. What do you think? I definitely agree with Cecilia about um, the amount of appetite and how everybody became a kind of an amateur, <laughs> but I'm going to say admittedly amateur data analyst, right? Um, but I, I still think we were challenged quite a bit on decision making. So, so you brought up that idea like, okay, we've seen that curve, but do we know when to tell people to take their masks off, right? Mm -hmm. And what is too high and what is too low? Uh, and I think that was, we still really struggled with that. So I think there was still a big challenge in interpreting that data for, for high-level decision-making across our organizations and our institutions, uh, but also our personal level of decision-making. You know, so I think that was definitely, definitely a challenge. I think another thing that I, I kind of saw just kind of as an observer with a kind of an interest in this area was a bit of a lack, of, I'm going to go back to the idea of trust, a bit of a lack of trust sometimes. You know, maybe this is closer to maybe how in interventions and treatments, but trust in science, you know, so we'd hear from people, well, you know, the science has changed, you know, the science hasn't changed, you know, the science is evolving, the data is evolving, we're collecting it on the fly, you know, so it was a very dynamic environment, and I think that was hard sometimes for people to, to understand that every day we knew more, and the reality was just we knew more, and that changes decision making, and that's a really hard environment for people too, because the models that they had, you know, we, in my field we talk a lot about mental models, your understanding of the world, uh, in March 2020 and now is completely different and it's been informed and it has changed uh, and sometimes that degree of change is, is hard for people to to adjust and people will tend to you know we tend to have people who will adapt very quickly to changes of, in information and people who, who will kind of lag you know and there's no I can't even say what's the right decision but we see different levels of comfort okay, with that decision and that changing data landscape. So the trust issue, right? Oh my goodness, you, you scientists lied to me because you yeah. told me a different, you know, something different last month yeah. and that's not the case now. Well, what are you doing to me? Yeah. 
is this a messaging issue, right? Do we, do we as scientists need to learn or improve yeah. our skill in communication? I think it's a huge communication issue that we really saw come forward. You know, it's one thing to have the science, it's one thing to have the data, but if we're not communicating effectively, people don't know how to use it effectively. And at the end of the day, a lot of the decisions are very, very individual. Yeah. So yeah, I think science, we should have on this panel a science, a data communicator, because yeah. you know, that's a very, very important issue and has to be done very, very carefully. Yeah, it is, and sometimes numbers, I think to us, number mean what they are, um, but it's not always the case for everybody, right? So I think if I'm talking to you know, someone who is not, you know, with their head in numbers all the time like we are, I may not tell them that, oh, this disease is going to, like, like the Black Death, right? Okay, it's, it's gonna, it, it killed one half of Europe. Okay, you can say that, 30% of Europe. Or you can say, look at us, one of us is dead, right? So that has a different impact, and I think it gets to the point better. I'm not sure, you know, how that works, you know, when it comes to trust, but the messaging is something that um, I find really, really important because I want, you know, my finding and everybody's finding um, to have impact, but, um, you know, to package our finding, to, to, to have the right message that even when you change something, it still has to look consistent. You have to look like, you know, I didn't lie to you. Um, that is tricky. And honestly, I'm not sure how many of us have training. Like, we kind of learn, you know, try and error. Okay, so let's um, switch gear a little bit and talk about something that's really dear to my heart. Um, it is about how do you um, use data in your work um, to um, manage disease or make decisions for different population or different people. Um, so I said it's very dear to my work um, because um, I'm I'm very interested, you know, in understanding sex differences in biology and in, in medicine. Um, so, um, like, as you probably know, um, maybe you don't, because I didn't for a very long time. Um, clinical trial used to be all about men. I'm not talking about white men, maybe mostly white men. Um, so, just men, right? So, there was a really big trial on a very important medication called aspirin. You've taken aspirin before? Um, right, aspirin, right? So it was in the 90s, not that long ago. I was all grown up. Um, so it was a big, gigantic trial, and I cannot remember how many people there were involved, but I think it's on the order of about 24,000 people, right? All over the world, huge clinical trial. Um, do you know how many women? Zitch, zero, right? No, nada. Um, you know, why is that? Well, you know, if they're pregnant, you don't want to hurt the baby. Okay, good point. Um, they have menstrual cycle, so it, it, you know, it changes the face. So, yes, yes, it does, but, you know, live with it. Um, so, you know, this is how it is, half of the population. So it's very important to me. And um, I also understand, you know, there are certain diseases like high blood pressure. How many of you have high blood pressure? You don't look old enough, maybe you don't. Um, you know, like men get it more than women. However, if you look at the 
um, how often do men actually get their blood pressure under control by taking drugs? They do better than women. Is it because women don't take them? That's not true. We have very good compliance rate. Maybe the drug don't work as well because they didn't test enough in women. I don't know. Right? So, but that's the kind of question that is really dear to my heart. Um, I think everybody should be treated, you know, um, optimally, right? So um, understanding, maybe using data, what is the best approach to treat not just different gender or different sex, you know, different race, you know, um, um, like, you know, Asian, maybe we get, you know, certain disease more than Caucasian and differently from Latinos, right? So understanding that every, we are all different is very important to me. And you can do that with data. I'm blabbing on. So um, what do you think? First? Yeah, sure. Okay, so I'll tell you a story kind of from my research uh, that shows how we look at different ways of using data. So one of the, the projects, and actually we're still working on this right now, so it's quite, it's quite current for us, uh, is I have a, a, a grad student and he's working with some colleagues um, at a hospital in Toronto and he's working with the case of pediatric sepsis. Okay? And sepsis is quite a, it's a very challenging disease because one is it's very damaging and it happens very, very quickly, okay, a matter of hours. Um, and time really is, you know, the longer it goes, the more risks and more organ failure you're likely to have, okay? So quick intervention really counts. However, it tends to present at the very earliest stages very similar to many other things. That's often one of the challenges in healthcare is that the, the data that you think you're collecting can be, you know, the data that you're collecting can be actually indicative of a whole bunch of different conditions. So it's very challenging um, and very challenging condition to predict, but there's a lot of motivation to try to understand it and, and interact really, really quickly. So we, we started this, this research project thinking that, well, this actually might be a really good, good place for AI, okay, for artificial intelligence, because hospitals, they have a lot of cases, they've got a lot of data, and this is a situation where we don't really have a, a very strong algorithmic model. So maybe if we looked at the, at the data sets, okay, maybe if we looked at, uh, you know, what kids came in and what was their data before they had sepsis and which ones had sepsis and which ones didn't, we'd be able to develop that model. And AI can be fantastic in those kinds of situations, okay, where it can start to actually um, understand some of the relationships that might not be easily apparent in your existing models. And as we worked through it, and we started work, kept working with our hospital partners, uh, and we actually started finding out how much they'd had, they actually told us, well, they'd had, you know, they were quite, you know, it's a big problem, sepsis in children, they'd had 400 cases. Uh, well, actually, that's not enough to build an AI model. It's actually good that they don't have more. <laughs> so I want to emphasize that. We don't really want, this is not something you ha don't want to have. So it is an idea of a, it is a case situation where we don't have a, a really enough data to build those kinds of models. Okay? And had we continued and built that model, we actually would have really possibly built a very misleading technology. Okay? It wouldn't have had adequate reliability. People could have made very poor decisions on it. Uh, and it really would have been a really misuse of the data. Okay? Uh, so we've really had to kind of step back and say, okay, so we've got a very small data set. And now, what are the more appropriate ways of handling that situation? You know, and so we're looking at you know, different kinds of scoring methods, talking to the clinicians with expertise, um, even trying to find out what are some of the extra things they add. I mean, there's the data that you 
can collect that's already kind of in the system. But then there's also a lot of really less quantitative things, like how did they look that morning? Something feels wrong. You know, that kind of fuzzy stuff, too. And that's really, really hard to collect. It's not really necessarily in their medical record. Um, but that's how we're kind of moving through that problem. You know, and it's made me reflect a little bit that we can't just um, take our, our latest technologies and kind of pigeonhole it onto our problem. We have to think about that problem. We have to think about that data, think about that data set, and think about whether or not we're using it appropriately. Because okay? there can be a whole bunch of different choices that we're making on that data journey. And they can really impact the decision making and how effective those tools are going to be. You need to make good progress because SEPS has hurt my favorite organ, which is the kidney. So it I does. do kidney research. That is yep. my favorite organ by far. Like it hurts the it kidney, does. poor thing. So yep. you need to. Okay. Okay. I'm <laughs> counting on you, Catherine. <laughs> Cecilia. Okay. Um, I will answer your question, but I just have a little story, oh, which yeah. is actually today in STAT 337, Introduction to Biostatistics. I was introducing the different medical study designs, and the example of the randomized control trial I gave was the follow-up study where they only enrolled women. Oh, Looking okay. at the low-dose aspirin. So after that study came out, someone at least had the good idea that we needed to do a similar study. And 40,000 women oh, in the 90s, okay. they did a study. So is to supplement um, the previous? I think they finally clued into the fact that maybe we, that women are not just small men. Um, and oh, that, and you know, the associations might be, might be different. I can um, go on and on so, about the physiological yeah. differences. Yeah. <laughs> but, we, but we won't talk about that. Sign up for the next event. Yeah. I'll do one of those. <laughs> um, so I have a sort of a similar example in that there, it was a problem where we didn't have enough data and then we solved it using different, more data. So this was looking at um, childhood cancer survivors, so a colleague at the Hospital for Sick Children. Um, we know that kids who survive cancer have had had chemotherapy, but in particular, they've had radiation. And so that puts them at increased risk of secondary cancers. Um, and in particular, we were looking at women who uh, in these they were girls, but now their women are at quite increased risk of breast cancer. And so probably they need to start screening prior to age 50, which is the current Ontario recommendations for people who are at normal, at normal risk would start at age 50. And this is a case where there aren't that many survivors, thankfully, and because there's not that many cases of this childhood cancer. And we also don't really want to wait 30 or 40 years to see when they develop breast cancer. And it's too small to run a randomized control trial. Um, and they need to know now. Like, the physicians need to know now. Should we be telling these women to start their mammograms at age 25? Should they have mammograms or should they have MRI? Lots of different possibilities every year, every second year. Lots of different ways that we could do the screening. Um, so what we ended up doing was using historical data on the development of breast cancer from a time before screening. Because the problem is all the current breast cancer incidents, people are being screened. And that has sort of affected, we are no longer getting estimates of the true, when, it would, when you would develop it if you weren't being screened. And we used that to basically build a stochastic model 
of a tumor. So we imagine that these women are at increased risk and there were lots of inputs from lots of different data sources, lots of previous studies. Um, and you, you, know, you imagine there's a tumor. For each woman, it's going to start at some age. Sometimes that age is beyond their natural life, lifespan. Um, and it's going to grow at a certain rate, and there's variation in that rate, and it's going to cross thresholds, certain thresholds. It'll be detectable via mammogram, a different threshold for detectable via MRI, and then a different threshold where we assumed that it would actually be like medically detected through either self-detection or, or symptomatically. And so we built this big model, and then we were able to just test out different screening strategies. So what if we try and tell this population of women to come every year for a mammogram or every six years for an MRI? And then look overall in our simulated world, and the great thing about simulation is you can simulate as many worlds as you want, under these different strategies, which led to the best um, life expectancy. Um, you can also do a cost-benefit analysis, although we were mostly interested in life expectancy, not necessarily the healthcare cost. Um, I do sometimes like to just not acknowledge health economics and imagine that we have an infinite amount of money and all we want to do is make people live as long, quality-adjusted and as well uh, as possible. So that was a situation where, you know, again, small data set, you're never going to answer it with your own data, but incredible other sources of data that you can pull together into a model and then actually make clinical recommendations so that in now we have these big um, survivorship centers where people who survive childhood cancer are getting specialized treatment and then they can actually make data-driven decisions about how often they should go for breast cancer screening and similarly other kinds of screening as well. So there's a lot of exciting possibilities out there. Exciting, that's for sure. And I love that work because that's what I do too. I, I, I do simulation. I create many, many, what, is, what, is, what does Marvel call it? Multiverse? That's what we live in. Yeah. Right. So We lived so, in the multiverse for a long time. <laughs> I know. They, they, they stole our idea, right? So, okay, is it okay if I take off my moderator hat and put on my scientist hat ask you a sign question? How did you validate the model? So we validated it against the pre- like the historical, it was SEER data, which is historical cancer incidence data from a pre-screening um, era to make sure that our model was matching kind of like the, sort of like you could think of it like the summary statistics. So we have this model of tumors growing and we know that we would expect at this age a certain proportion of cancers to have been detected. So you have kind of benchmarks that you're looking at, and then you can see how well how well you hit those, and we use you know expert opinion to get some estimates of what we'd expect that incidence curve to look like. So I'm gonna put a plug in for simulation. It is cool. This is what I do. It is a lot of fun. Um, so you can simulate like virtual patients, like, which is what Cecilia um, is doing, or um, you can use it in drug development, right? For example. I want to cure, okay, cancer, we've talked about Alzheimer's. I want to cure Alzheimer's. Um, I think the last successful drug that was, you know, accepted or approved and people actually take them um, was approved 15, 16 years ago. 
And since then, very little progress, right? Which is very sad. Um, but there is a lot of money poured into that research because if you hit the jackpot, okay, yes, you can save a lot of people, but you also make a whole lot of money. Um, but, there, but the problem with making good progress in like this disease is that, okay, um, everybody target the um, amyloid beta protein, right? So, but with each protein, you know, there are all kinds of variants and there is all kinds of ends you need to attach to what I mean is there are a lot of possibility. There are a lot of drugs that can potentially work, right? So maybe your lab come over, oh, these are 20 possible things that could kill Alzheimer. Are you gonna take it to the you know, CFO of a drug company and convince them to run 20 different clinical trials? Maybe you can try. Do you know how much money it costs if a clinical trial was de is declared a failure at phase three. You know how much it is? Huge amount of money. Um, I think it's on the order of two or you know three billion dollars. A lot of money. That's one one failed trial. I I as a pharmaceutical company, if I were, is willing to invest that because of the potential you know um, you know benefit to my company. But I'm not going to invest in 20 of them. Good luck with you, right? So what do you do? What you can do is to build a model of a person or, or something, right? And run simulation on that computer to simulate 20 different drugs. Okay? The advantages of using data and math and simulation is that number one, if the drug has side effect and kill the liver of your simulated person, First of all, they don't die. Second of all, they don't come sue you. So that's good, okay? Uh, and secondly, it's much cheaper and faster to run simulation of 20 different drugs. Much cheaper. I mean, most of them are going to fail anyway, right? So you run them, and then what you do, you pick the top, say, two. Two performance. Top in terms of efficacy, okay, it works well. And side effect, not too bad. Okay. Then you take these two, would you simulate the data to the pharmaceutical company and convince them to pay you good money. So that, that is you know, why I love simulation. I have this multiverse and it all works beautifully. If it doesn't, that's okay, I jump to a different one. And with America's help, I think. <laughs> um, so, um, okay, so one more question. Um, we live in Canada, we live in Ontario, right? So um, can you comment on um, the extent to which the data, health data in Canada or Ontario uh, may be unique, different from you know, like other parts of the world or even different from you know, south of the border where I used to live. And um, you know, how can we take advantage of this uniqueness of our data, health data in Canada? Yeah, so we have, I mean, in the context of Ontario, which is where most of my work has been done, um, because we have socialized healthcare, we have very good record linkage between a lot of different databases. So I was working with some colleagues from the School of Pharmacy and we were looking at changes in dispensing of, of drugs in long-term care facilities. Uh, and we were able to link five different databases together um, based on essentially people's OHIP number is the unique identifier across them. Um, in order to, to do this study. So that's very exciting because it's all there, it's, it's, it's available and it's very high quality. Um, 
It's challenging to get access to it. So I think that that's sort of the biggest challenge. I mean, I think we are doing a very good job uh, at collecting data anytime you interact with the healthcare system. It is creating a record in a database. And um, there are laws in Ontario that if that data can be used for research purposes and you don't need to know about it. You don't need to provide informed consent. You don't need to get an ethics approval if the data is being used for research purposes um, within certain regulations. So from that perspective, like we're doing great because the information is out there. I think the hardest part is access. There are very necessary gatekeepers to access to this private information. And it's a matter of finding that balance so that researchers who want to quickly get studies out and quickly learn about what's going on can get the data while you know, preventing just anybody from, from seeing what's going on. Um, so it's a balance, but we have really good data out there. Yeah, I, I would agree that we've got really good data out there. Uh, I think the part which is really challenging outside of the research world is the access problem. Uh, and I think it's really challenging in terms of healthcare service delivery. Uh, you were able to string together five databases to get the data that you needed, um, mm -hmm. but your family physician can't do that. You know? And that's some of what we see in some of my work is we look at how people move through different parts of our healthcare system. You know? So you're at home, and then you go to the hospital, and then you get discharged, and then you go home. Um, you know, and you have things that happen during that pathway. You know, an easy one to think about is medications. You know, you're on a certain set of medications or you're at home. Um, something happens, you go to the hospital, you're there for a week. Um, they'll probably give you a new set of medications. They may substitute or change something that you were on. You may be on something specific for why you went into the hospital. You may need to take it for a week or two when you get back. That's probably going to come, these days it's probably going to come back to you in like a paper record that you take to your pharmacist. It doesn't have to be paper, <laughs> okay? Uh, and then you're going to be filling those prescriptions. You're going to have your old prescriptions. Those systems, that's an example of a system that doesn't connect, okay? And that's not a very complicated situation, okay? It's just a list of your medications and when you take them. And that can be really challenging in a healthcare context, okay? Because if you were on one blood pressure medication before you went in the hospital and they changed you to another one, you could come home and then you could have two sitting there in your in your medicine cabinet, and that's when people start to make mistakes. Okay? Uh, so having these kinds of data systems start to connect to each other, okay? having them talk to each other okay? so that the hospital knows what you were taking at home, you don't go into the hospital with a little bag of medications because they told you to bring your meds because they don't know, they should be able to access that kind of a record. And when you get out of the hospital, everybody has your record. You don't have to call your physician and say, hey, guess what, I was in the hospital because, you know, this happened. Okay? They should already have that, that kind of information that needs to flow. I think that's really, really important for improving our healthcare. The data is out there, okay? It's, it's, it's available, it's, but patients get asked the same questions every single step along the way because it's not connecting. And I think that's a real big challenge in the Canadian healthcare system um, and a challenge that we, we have the capability to fix. Cool. So um, I'm going to make a small comment about that, and then maybe um, I can get to some of your questions. So if you have any questions, um, or people online, send them in, and if I can see them, I'll ask you a question. So um, 
I, I, I do find um, the Canadian healthcare um, data and um, Ontario in particular much easier to work with than, say, when I was in the States, right? So in the States, there was no universal healthcare. So you will have, um, you do have electronic health record. And you have what's called the billing information, right, as, you, as you know. Yeah. But the pro you know what the problem of that is? A lot of people will be in, in your data set for maybe two years, and then they just disappear. You're like, did this person die? No, they probably did not die, and they just changed job. Because they changed job, they live in the same house. They didn't move away. They changed job. So insurance company different. Well, they just disappear from your data set, right? So um, that was a lot trickier. So it, things are a lot easier um, in, in Canada and in Ontario for sure. Although with personal experience, I think that there is still somewhat room for improvement because I remember taking, I got this letter one day going home and from, from um, uh, Ontario Health can't remember where it is, but basically telling me that I need to get my act together and take my 14-year-old son to get certain vaccination. I said, okay, I will call and I'll do that. Um, and then when I show up, um, they have the, the doctor that has um, access to some of the vaccination. He said, well, did he get all his HPV? I said, it's not in your record. He said, no, we don't have access to it. You need to call this number. I said, oh, really? <laughs> okay, I thought with my health card, you know everything about me, but apparently not. Um, so, um, okay, so um, I'm wondering if I can um, get, oh, I have a question right there. I'm going to read that, and then I will have my panelists address that. So the lucky person who has the first question in, da da da, da. Okay, so this is about health literacy. Okay, so how much you know about health. We talk about literacy, um, I think in, what, 10th uh, grade, you got tested for your literacy, right? I actually put on my math hat, I think numeracy is important. People should be get tested about math before they get, get their health, you know, high school diploma, but I'm going off script here. Okay, health literacy. How can we improve the health literacy of everybody, citizen, not people sitting here, okay? Doesn't matter. So that we, as a society, can best interpret the data and can best make informed health decisions for ourselves. And maybe for, if you're a policymaker, for your society. So how can we do that? How can we educate everybody and not force things on them? Can I start? Anyone, yes. Okay, um, great question. So my compliments to the question asker. Um, first of all, there's no reason we couldn't be teaching more health literacy and how to understand data, how to work with data. Um, in school at very early ages, okay? Because everybody's going to be growing up into a very data-rich environment, a data-rich world. They're going to be working with technologies that are, are very data-driven. So I think that education can start very, very early. Uh, but specifically in healthcare, you know, part of my answer to this question maker is uh, you shouldn't always be having to make informed health decisions entirely by yourself. So one aspect of my research is we look at something called shared decision-making, okay? And that means shared with you as well as with your expertise team, your physicians and clinicians who are helping you through that. And that really talks about really developing a healthcare model okay, where you as a patient have a very open conversation with your physician and with your care team. They have an obligation to inform you as well, to educate you through that process, okay, to talk to you about the, what the possible side effects of different treatments, the possible consequences, 
how well something might work, how it might affect your quality of life. Okay? And you have that obligation to speak up and say, you know, this treatment would work well for me, and you know, that one, I'm not really willing to, you like kidneys, for dialysis. Maybe I'm not willing to go to the hospital three times a week to be on dialysis, and that doesn't fit my quality of life right now. And you have that right to kind of make that decision. And to me, that's an informed decision, okay, and that you're making it in context, um, in a care context of clinical care partners. Uh, and everybody's had this, this rich discussion so that they have actually helped to inform you as well. A great, great question. Yeah, I agree there's a lot we could do, like, particularly thinking about um, testings. We've all become experts in home COVID tests and sensitivity and specificity and that sort of thing. I mean, that should be covered in the high school. It's really simple, it's really simple probability. Um, so I think it comes down to numeracy overall. Um, and I mean, Catherine's answer was great and I will echo her sentiments and just to add something new. We also need to, when we think about, so if you're deciding what treatment to take for your disease, it doesn't impact anyone else, so you should make the best decision you can. Um, but the, I think we also need to develop kind of an appreciation for the public health and the private health and that how related those are. And I don't think before the pandemic people ever really had to think about how the personal decisions they make impact other people. Um, so that's, I think, something that just has to always be in the conversation as well, depending on you know, what kind of health decision you're making, because we do not all live in a vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. So I think in general, getting a lot of information and then make a um, decision out of it, it's a life skill, right? Yeah. It's very difficult, or you know, make a decision, putting your emotion aside. So, um, yeah, weighing pros and cons and everything, that's challenging. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right, so um, second question. This is um, about computation. So, if I'm looking at things from a research or computation point of view, we have a lot of data. Christian was saying, okay, it's growing by um, some unit I don't even remember. I just know it's huge, huge amount of data and growing huger and huger every day, right? So it's growing so fast, maybe faster than um, you know, the, the biggest computer or the algorithm can handle them. I'm not sure about that. I can develop the best algorithm that can handle that, but let's, let's pretend that's not the case. Okay, so we have more data can we, than we can handle. So the question is, are there downsides in having too much data. What do you think? I mean, I would always rather have l less data that was well collected and complete <laughs> than more data that is messy and incomplete. So there's certainly downsides in terms of having too much data in that my experience, as the volume goes up, it's quite likely that the quality is gonna go down. So that is a challenge. I'm less concerned about the development of algorithms to handle it. Um, obviously, you know, data science is still moving forward. 
Um, but there's all kinds of developments that are way outside of my range of expertise, but in terms of algorithms and chips, and like it's a huge area of active research. So maybe if the algorithm doesn't work today, you know, six months from now, it could be entirely a different situation. So yeah, I'm less concerned about the volume of the data and more about the quality. And that just takes, you know, well-informed critical eyes to not just decide, hey, I'm going to throw a neural net on this and we'll see what pops out, yeah. but to really think critically about what the data represents and how we're going to use it, what we can and can't learn from that information. So I think like that's where the challenge is, is to not kind of blindly trust our AI and not apply it when we only have 400 <laughs> data points because we know better um, than to do that. So that's where I think the challenge lies. Yeah, I have to say when I saw this question, the first thing that came to my mind <laughs> is you're going to have to pay a lot to hire a lot of really great data scientists. It just shows that the field is growing, right? So the, the question asker is completely right. Um, the data is growing, the algorithms will have to keep up, you know, and yeah, they're going to have to fit. It just really points, if anything, that question I think points to the escalation of the space, you know, so I think it's a, I think it's a smart question. Yeah. yeah, so I, I would say when I do um, data research, um, I spend basically a, about the same amount of time, if not more, thinking. Just sit here and think. Stare over there and think about what the results mean. Then, you know, my computer just crank through the data. Um, a lot of time after they crank it through, I look at it and I decide it's junk for good reason. So, yeah, it's, it's not just about blind. I totally agree with you. It's not just about blindly. Um, um, you know, apply an algorithm to data. You need what we call domain knowledge. You have to know what the number means. Um, so, yes, that's the, I love that question. Um, okay, next one. Um, back to COVID. Okay, so how did the way that um, our healthcare data, how did the way that they were um, tabulated and interpreted and analyzed during COVID, during the past two years. How did the way the data was um, uh, understood may help prepare us for the next pandemic? And do you think it will? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll just start there. Of course you will. I cannot yeah. believe otherwise, yes. I'm sure that we've learned a lot from it, right? I mean, I think we've seen, A, how much the general population can learn from data. I think we've seen, um, from a government perspective, the organization of science tables that bring forward the data to our political leaders. Okay, I think they've probably learned quite a bit on how they present that data for decision-making to those, to those leaders. Uh, so I think those are things that hopefully are going to stay and last and hopefully continue to improve. Um, I think we saw a lot of global um, communication and collaboration. Okay, and I think that was really special too, you know, because health isn't just here in Canada, it's not here in Waterloo, it's not here in Ontario, right? Things like what we saw in the COVID pandemic is something that moves across the world, moves across very quickly, you know, and so having that degree of collaboration in our data world I think is also really important and that's going to be really, really critical to be prepared for the next pandemic or health emergency. You know, we know it, it, something will happen, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, what really increased during the pandemic was the public's um, appetite and ability to handle this kind of information. So just from that standpoint, like the 
ed all the education that went in during the beginning of the pandemic and people learning um, is going to be applicable again if the next pandemic hits sooner than the lag between the last two pandemics. Um, so, and I hope that what we have learned is that people do want data-driven decisions yeah. to be made yeah. and they want to see the data that drove the decisions and they can handle that. So I hope that what it will lead to is more transparency in future pandemics or other situations that might arise like this. And also collaboration uh, yeah. among scientists in yeah. sometimes different fields. And I have never seen so much money and federal, federal fund pour into just making your, your data homogenous, like being able to use, like sometimes you got, you, you, you merge, you know, data set from different systems, right? So the painful thing is that um, the formatting of the data, the way they collect it, the way it's annual data, it's all different. So now there is actually money, you know, for people to make sure that the data um, can be used mm -hmm. by other scientists. So that is new, and I think that actually will prepare us um, for, for the next pandemic. And also, you know, the, way, the fact that we actually developed a vaccine in actually a rather short amount of oh, time. It's shocking. Right? It was shocking. I honestly, I did not believe that would happen. Um, so it shocked me. I was amazed. So next time I have higher expectation, okay? The next COVID, I want my vaccine in six weeks, right? <laughs> um, totally doable. Okay, all right, so next question. Um, you heard about the platform 23andMe, right? Okay. I don't think I heard about it until rather recently, but yes, there was such a thing. And it's been branching, it's branched out from a geomakers um, into health and, you know, about the likelihood um, of you developing a disease, right? So that's quite important. People recognize its importance. So how could platforms like this um, shape our current healthcare system? 23andMe and healthcare. What do you think? Well, my first answer is I'm glad we have universal health care <laughs> okay. in this standpoint because my concern about 23andMe is, you know, really from more of the U.S. perspective is, is your genetics going to become a pre-existing yeah. condition that's going to yeah. cause people to have problems getting health insurance or life insurance? Um, so I think that there's a lot of unanswered questions in that department, yeah. like, what is valid usage of this data and what is invalid usage and is it only for you? Um, on the other hand, I mean, there are a lot of diseases for which early intervention leads to far better outcomes. And so if you're in a situation, I'll, you know, just go back to breast cancer as an example where you, you know you're at increased risk of breast cancer and therefore you should be doing earlier screening, you know, stage one or stage two breast cancer is much better than stage three or stage four. So I can definitely see a, a world in which having that kind of information can really provide a better quality of life for a lot of people. And I think there's a lot of um, discussions that have to happen on the ethics and then also just the quality of that data. I have no idea how good 23andMe actually is and how accurate that information is. If you're going to start basing decisions on that, you know, I want to know that that is reliable. Yeah. Um, so a lot of unanswered questions, but like the potential for real advances. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's a really exciting 
area actually, you know, not just 23andMe, but the whole area of us potentially taking advantage of the data that we're already collecting about ourselves. You know, a lot of us are wearing our watches that are tracking our steps, uh, maybe our heart rates. Some of them have algorithms on now that are looking at, well, catch atrial fibrillation. Um, they're not necessarily complete, they're not at the grade at level that you'd get at the hospital for that kind of situation, but it is data. Okay, and there's been lots of cases where people have um, caught something a little bit earlier, you know. So it brings up a lot of challenges. So it could be really informative. It could really help things move forward. Um, but, it, you know, there are going to be questions too, right? How well was that data collected? Under what conditions? So there's going to be a few challenges to kind of calibrate it. Um, but I think the reality is it's, it means the, the health data sphere is much bigger than in that physician's office, in that hospital. It could actually be out all around us. I mean, I've got colleagues who are studying, um, you know, population health and air pollution in our environments. What can we measure from our thermostats? You know, they get interesting patterns. You know, if you see a household that they raise a thermostat two degrees, maybe it means somebody's got a fever. You know, there's, yeah, so there's this really, really rich world out there, which, you know, maybe in the next 10 to 20 years, I think we actually will see that, that data start to come in for some consideration. And it's in orders of magnitudes larger than what we already have. So back to the previous question about massive amounts of data increasing. And how are we going to interpret it? Um, how do we use it to make better decisions? But exciting, exciting times. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow, like, rate, subscribe, whatever your podcast player lets you do. We've got more event recordings to share in the coming months, plus more episodes that explore alumni career journeys. And hey, if you loved all the talk about data in this episode, maybe you'd like to join us for the next event in the series. Data Plus the Arts is happening in September 2022, and you can register to attend virtually or in person now. Just follow the link in the episode description. Uncharted Warriors in the World is produced by me, Meg Vanderwood. Aju Chow is our editor. Aju and I are both alumni and staff at the University of Waterloo.